The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In the 18th century, Dr. Samuel Johnson said the following of Shakespeare's play, The Tragedy of Othello, The Moor of Venice. Quote, the beauties of this play impress themselves so strongly upon the attention of the reader that they can draw no aid from critical illustration, end quote. But of course, readers and critics have been marveling at the play for more than 400 years. One of Shakespeare's four great tragedies, Othello is perhaps the most difficult of them to watch. The malevolent Iago, viewed by some as evil incarnate, has been arousing audience hatred for centuries. Legend has it that at one performance in the 19th century, a cowboy attending a performance was so offended by Iago's machinations, he pulled out his pistol and shot him. And theater professionals are well accustomed to the gasps, cries, and occasional screams from the audience as they view the horrendous scene in which the jealous lead character is finally driven to kill his wife, the innocent Desdemona. Tragic heroes and uncanny villains, sexual jealousy and vile cunning, coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Now, Let's start with a reminder of where we are in the journey. We've dipped into tragedy before, most notably with the ancient Greeks and our foray into how Nietzsche approved and didn't approve of certain forms of tragedy. We're taking a slight departure from our chronology. We paused in the Tang Dynasty, that's where we left off, and we zoomed forward for a look at the Hemingway-Fitzgerald debate. We had another episode where we examined the impact of MFA programs on American writing, and of course, our trip into the uncertain world of Hamlet. Why Shakespeare? I don't think I even need to answer that, but I will. It took us two episodes to cover everything in the Confessions of St. Augustine. Shakespeare will need many more, so we're splitting them up and sprinkling them in. Othello has a lot in common with Hamlet. We can get down to basics and say that Hamlet is a play about not knowing what to do and not knowing how to act, and that uncertainty lies at the heart of Othello as well. We'll get into that. It's a little deeper than that, a little more complicated, a little bit different. One thing I didn't mention during the Hamlet episode is how Hamlet bridges the medieval world with the modern. There was a shift happening where power no longer meant that the king was the strongest and bravest man in the field of battle. Remember our very first episode, the Epic of Gilgamesh? That was a world that was a world that worked that way. The strongest became the leader. That was still the case in the Middle Ages. Kings still armed themselves and led troops into battle. Other members of the royal family did the same. Leading an army was the means of righting wrongs, exerting power, claiming turf. But in Elizabethan England things were starting to change moving to a world where courts and ambassadors and lawyers sorted things out. Now what was needed were wits, political subtlety, behind-the-scenes maneuvering. What does Hamlet's father, the dead king, the ghost, appear wearing? His armor. He, we are told in the play, led his troops into battle. His brother, sorry, his brother Claudius takes a different approach, sending ambassadors to resolve disputes. 
Hamlet is caught in the middle of two worlds. As a young, progressive student, we can imagine him, he doesn't believe in blood feuds and vengeance at the point of a sword. But what does that leave him with? What tools does he have to right the wrong that his uncle and mother have committed? Words, words, words. Othello is in this world too. Othello and Iago, of course. Iago, the king, the dark king of words. Othello is a military hero. He's getting on in years, but he's still grand. He speaks well, he's a beautiful creature, and the lovely Desdemona falls in love with him based on how majestic he is. All is fine except for one thing. Iago. Iago lurking about. Iago hates Othello, so he seizes upon the one area that can interfere with Othello's happiness, the lever by which he will upend Othello's world. Sexual jealousy. Jealousy is a powerful enough emotion. Sexual jealousy lights out. It's true today, just as it was then. The question of Iago's motivation has never really been resolved, which means that it's ambiguous, which means that the greatness of the character is because there are multiple possibilities and a little bit of truth to all of them. Iago suggests at one point that Othello has slept with Amelia, Iago's wife, but many critics have judged that as merely a half-hearted attempt to excuse himself. Here's an interesting idea set forth by Laurence Olivier. Olivier had his problems with Othello. Famously, he portrayed Othello in a production in the 1960s that is often judged as the worst performance of Olivier's career. Part of this is to do with issues of race, which they didn't quite resolve and which we'll talk about in a little bit, a little bit later in the episode. Here's a, a great quote of Olivier's, quote, I had this idea that Shakespeare and Burbage were out on a binge one night, each trying to outdrink the other. Just before one or the other slid under the alehouse table, Burbage looked at Shakespeare and said, I can play anything you write, anything at all. And Shakespeare said, Right, I'll fix you, boy, and wrote Othello. End quote. On the other hand, there's a famous story that Olivier one night gave a performance of Othello that transcended everything he had ever done before. And someone, maybe it was the director, rushed backstage to congratulate him and found him staring into space, frozen. He looked as if he wasn't well. And the director said, well, I hope you're satisfied with that. You finally figured out how to play it. And Olivier said, I don't know what I did. I don't know how I did it. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We should probably add that others have failed with Othello as well. Even the great Paul Schofield, the actor so marvelous in A Man for All Seasons, apparently was nearly laughed off the stage after he made the artistic choice of having his Othello jump onto Desdemona's bed, go onto all fours, and moo like a cow three times. Acting. Acting. All, this, all these stories of the actors are great, because, of course, Shakespeare was an actor, and wrote for actors, and many of his characters are actors within the plays. Iago, chief among them. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're talking about what motivates Iago. Why does he hate the more? Is it simple racism? Is it latent homosexuality rearing its ugly head and twisting his behavior? Here's an explanation I like. This comes from Olivier again. Remember that Iago and Othello have been in battle together. Now, ordinarily, we think that that makes you friends, comrades, lifelong allies. I know the feeling of camaraderie that I get from sports teams, and even at work, from working together on projects. I can only imagine what it must be like for veterans of actual battle. And yet, Iago has been passed over. Othello chose Cassio, who apparently has more promise as a theoretician of the military than Iago, but hasn't been down in the dirt the way Iago has. He's a, quote, mathematician, Iago sneers. Here's Olivier's explanation. Quote, I think that few who have had experience in the armed forces can find Iago hard to understand. One only has to glance round a wardroom table and take note of the aging, hard-bitten faces of those passed over. When I was a two-striper in the Royal Navy, one of my fellow officers was given a half-stripe more than I, and from this favorable position decided he would amuse himself by taking the mickey out of me. There was no way I could get back at him, and resentment began to fester. One evening, I suddenly thought of a way. Of course, he's married. Flushing with horror, I realized, God, I've become Iago. Resentment. Little things. Little petty things. But we do resent them, don't we? We hate our bosses, even when we like them, even when they are fantastic and wonderful people. There's a part of us who resents it, resents the power, the subservience. I haven't hated all my bosses, by the way, but you know what I mean. Ever been in a room where one person tells a joke and everyone else is compelled to laugh because the person telling the joke is in the superior position? It breeds resentment. And if you were passed over, you, who did the dirty work, who showed real courage, who faced unspeakable horrors of war, and you were passed over in favor of some bookish aristocrat who looked like a leader but had no dirt under his fingernails. Hate is not so far from resentment. Are you convinced? Not everyone buys it. Iago seems more than just resentful. He has a kind of diabolical fury. Some just throw up their hands and say that Iago is diabolical literally diabolical, the devil himself appearing on stage. And it's certainly an interesting idea. Even if we don't literally believe in the devil, 
There is something fascinating about pure evil, just evil for the sake of evil, inexplicable evil. We looked at this, at evil and the problem of recognizing evil, in our show with Professor Rebecca Messbarger. I recommend that one. If you have time to go back and take a listen. We also saw this exact same issue come up in Augustine. Remember the passage, the one I found so unusual, where Augustine claims that there is always a purpose behind evil acts, because no one would murder just for the sake of murdering? We moderns, we who have seen enough psychopaths, have a different view. I think Shakespeare did too. Or, he saw it as plausible enough to entice us with it, as one among many possibilities for what motivates Iago. Here's another question. How did such a character as Iago come to fool Othello? It's here, examining this question, that we'll really see the parallels to Hamlet. Othello was probably written a year or two after Hamlet, but it's no stretch to think that Shakespeare was still wrestling with the same philosophical conundrums. Although his genius is so deep and so lively, it's easy to see him jumping into just about any philosophical problem at just about any point in his career. So how could Iago fool Othello? Some say Othello was, a, was sexually inexperienced, a virgin. Sir John Gilgood said that this was the only way that he could play him. It's hard to get the naivete right otherwise. There's some textual support for it as well. So Othello's someone who, perhaps, has a lot of experience with men and soldiers and warfare, but very little with women. And maybe he's put Desdemona on a pedestal. Maybe he views women this way, whether he's a virgin or not. Maybe that's an issue for chivalrous men in many eras, eras other than Shakespeare's. Maybe that's enough to answer our question. Why does Iago fool Othello? Because sexual inexperience, combined with the ardent belief in the purity of Desdemona, has left Othello helpless to an allegation that Desdemona might not be pure. I heard the author Richard Ford answer a question from an audience member this way. The audience member asked Richard Ford how he could write about divorce so well when he, at least at the time of this exchange, had never been divorced. And Ford said, it's because I care about marriage. Maybe that's the button that Iago found to push. The more, the hated more, believed so hard in something, purity, that any challenges to that purity, any allegations, any doubt could unravel him. This is where we see the closeness to Hamlet, uncertainty. For Hamlet, as we saw, it's the uncertainty of self, combined with the uncertainty of knowing others, that incapacitates him. In Othello, the uncertainty, the ambiguity, the need for proof, for evidence, his doubt becomes unbearable. He cries out at one point for certainty. This was common. Descartes, of course, sought it, looking for basic principles on which he could found his system of knowledge. I think, therefore, I am, is what he came up with as his first principle. Montaigne, though, is the place to look for essayists who may have influenced Shakespeare. Here's our question. How is Iago so effective? What is he tapping into here? He's cunning. He's vile. He can say anything. He has logic. He's ruthless. He's amoral. He's Dick Cheney. Sorry. Got carried away. But here's a quote from Montaigne that helps us see what Shakespeare may have had in mind. Remember, 
Shakespeare was a huge fan of Montaigne's essays. I think the essays of Montaigne are arguably the greatest influences on Shakespeare, and certainly would make any list of top three or four. Montaigne was a pioneer in examining himself and other humans, digging deep into the human condition, and his psychological insights are at times amazingly fresh. For Shakespeare and his contemporaries, they were nothing short of revelatory. Here's a good passage that Colin McGinn highlights in his book, Shakespeare's Philosophy. This is a quote from Montaigne. Quote, Those outside us see only events and external appearances. Anyone can put on a good outward show, while inside he is full of fever and fright. They do not see my mind. They only see the looks on my face. All those judgments which are based on external appearances are unbelievably unreliable and dubious, and why there is no more reliable witness than each man is to himself. Shakespeare's genius, the brilliant method of Shakespeare, is to take this uncertainty, this psychological truth and what it means, and put it into the play and, and use it to animate the play. And he puts this into the mind of Iago, Iago knows that this is how things work. He knows what this does to other people. He knows this truth about human nature, and he exploits it. He knows, of course, that sexual jealousy is powerful. But he also knows that doubt and uncertainty, our inability to know what is in another's mind or heart, is just as powerful. The more, Iago declares, is of a free and open nature that thinks men honest that but seem to be so. End quote. Iago learns the hard way that he isn't all-knowing either. He completely misreads Amelia, for example. He doesn't know what's in her mind, how loyal she is to Desdemona. But when it comes to Othello, Iago has him pegged. He takes things at face value. He's not a good judge of reality. And when he's faced with artifice, whether Iago is deceiving him, or is Desdemona the deceiver, his mind will break down with the uncertainty. Logic and language fail. One of the horrible things about Othello is seeing this downward spiral, as the once proud and majestic man descends into chaos. By heaven, I'll know thy thoughts, he exclaims at one point. He has many lines like this. If thou dost love me, show me thy thought. Show me. Evidence, proof, tangible evidence. He says to Iago, Thou hast set me on the rack. I swear tis better to be much abused than to know it, than but to know it a little. He'd rather know the whole painful truth than merely to suspect. Is this Hamlet in two lines or what? Hamlet and us. We want to know too. Of course, we would say, Go to Desdemona and ask her. That's your wife. Just ask her. Get her side of the story. But that's our modern sensibility. And anyway, would Othello believe her if she denied it? Iago would no doubt figure out a way to talk him out of it. And Othello would be faced with the same basic puzzle. Can he believe the words of Desdemona? Can he believe the words of anyone? How can he know? Finally, Othello gets some proof. That's in quotes the little bit with the handkerchief being passed around, that Iago persuades Othello is enough to inject some certainty into his world. Everything else is mere words and thoughts, nothing visible, nothing tangible, 
nothing he can see. Well, here's something. The handkerchief is something he can see. Poor Othello. Let's check in on our first line to see if Shakespeare has pulled his magic trick again. Remember the first line of Hamlet? Who's there? How good that was at reflecting the themes. Here's the first line of Othello. Never tell me. Tush, never tell me. We don't want words. Don't tell me words. Iago turns words into weapons. Words insinuate themselves into our minds, cause us uncertainty, make us suspect the worst until we believe the worst, maybe because we believe it, and maybe because we can no longer live with the uncertainty. Why, Iago, why? Descartes suggests an evil imp. He posits uh, that there's a demon who deceives us. He uses this imaginary experiment, this thought experiment, to explain his radical skepticism. How can we know anything? What if there's an evil demon that makes us see what we think we see or hear what we think we hear? How can we trust our senses if there's a possibility that an evil demon is altering everything that our senses take in? Iago is like the, this filter for Othello. He's like the evil demon, constantly fooling Othello into thinking that his senses may be deceiving him. Race is a part of the play, and it always has been, both for the themes and the performances. For the themes, it's easy to see. Iago might hate Othello all the more because Othello's a black man in a position of power. And Desdemona? She's all the more pure for accepting this man regardless of his skin color. Othello, all the more uneasy at being an outsider in this society. Desdemona's own father has issues with his color. I've focused on themes that would be independent of any racial issues. Sexual jealousy and the problems of uncertainty are colorblind in a sense. There have been... Excuse me, there have been strong performances by all white casts, or all black casts, for that matter. But even though these themes are colorblind, they are accentuated by race. As for the performances, race has been a challenge, often reflecting the audience more than the actors themselves. American audiences, until well in the 20th century, would not accept seeing a black actor tenderly caressing the face of a white actress so the parts were often played in blackface. Then people got used to the blackface, so even black actors playing Othello would play him in blackface. We've moved beyond it now, but I'm not sure it's as simple as it seems. We can have a black Macbeth or a black King Lear, the big, broad military parts. Hamlet is still a little stuck in the blonde Dane stereotype, but I'd like to think that we could watch a black Hamlet just as well. But if we switched Othello and Iago so that the Othello character was white and Iago was black, it would be interesting, but I'm not sure how well it would work. Anytime you play Othello with a white actor, you face criticism. Didn't you think a black actor would be as good? But black actors playing Othello face their own challenge, trying to make sure they play the character as a character, as a human being, and not as a representative of something. Shakespeare, our greatest playwright, had one hugely important black character. One. 
as is the case with Shylock in The Merchant of Venice, any actor playing the character has to carry a heavy load because the character comes with a lot of baggage. I want to close with Iago and a passage from Montaigne and another from Hazlitt, the great critic, both of these coming by way of Colin McGinn in his wonderful book. Remember Augustine, who couldn't fathom anyone committing evil for no reason at all. There had to be a purpose, Augustine thought. In his long life, he just hadn't seen evil, hadn't seen anyone acting out evil acts just for the sake of being evil. Here's Montaigne, writing about civil wars of religion in his own era. If I had not seen it, I could hardly have made myself believe that you could find souls so monstrous that they would commit murder for the sheer fun of it, would hack at another man's limbs and lop them off, and would cudgel their brains to invent unusual tortures and new forms of murder, not from hatred or for gain, but for the one sole purpose of enjoying the pleasant spectacle of the pitiful gestures and twitchings of a man dying in agony while hearing his screams and groans. For there you have the furthest point that cruelty can reach, that man should kill man, not in anger or in fear, but merely for the spectacle. We've come a long way from Augustine. Iago is the soldier returned home, willing to push the moor to the brink of madness, to murder as a spectacle, because he wants to. Whether that's evil or simply human, if there's even a difference between the two, is the question that Shakespeare forces us to ask. Here's Hazlitt, writing in the 19th century. He's such a great critic. I'll give him the last word, or almost the last word. Hazlitt thought Iago one of the greatest examples of Shakespeare's genius. And he said, Some persons more nice than wise, have thought this whole character unnatural, because his villainy is without a sufficient motive. Shakespeare, who was as good a philosopher as he was a poet, thought otherwise. He knew that the love of power, which is another name for the love of mischief, is natural to man. He would know this as well or better than if it had been demonstrated to him by a logical diagram, merely by seeing children paddle in the dirt or kill flies for sport. Iago, in fact, belongs to a class of characters common to Shakespeare, and at the same time, peculiar to him, whose heads are as acute and active as their hearts are hard and callous. Iago is, to be sure, an extreme instance of the kind, that is to say, of diseased intellectual activity, with an almost perfect indifference to moral good or evil or rather, with a decided preference for the latter, because it falls more readily in with his favorite propensity, gives greater zest to his thoughts and scope to his actions. He is quite, or nearly as indifferent to his own fate as to that of others. He runs all risks for a doubtful and trifling advantage, and is himself the dupe and victim of his ruling passion, an insatiable craving after action of the most difficult and dangerous kind. It's hard to watch, Iago. It's very hard to watch the ending of poor Othello, and of course, poor Desdemona. Desdemone. 
Othello calls her at the end. He drops off the A. Desdemone, demon, the demon, demon. Her name contains it right there, right there. Descartes' demon, Desdemone. Language starts to break down for Othello. He says this, lie with her, lie on her. We say lie on her when they belie her. Lie with her, zoons, that's fulsome. Handkerchief, confession, handkerchief. It's hard to watch. The scene of murder in the original play, the inspiration for Othello, the bed fell on top of Desdemona at the murder scene. That's symbolic and poetic. It's a little hard to manage the stage directions of that. Instead, Shakespeare gives us Othello killing Desdemona with his hands. Most of the time we see a strangulation. Orson Welles's Othello put a scarf in her, across her mouth and kissed her. It's hard to watch. It's hard to watch Iago. It's hard to watch the whole thing. The one tragedy of the four that's not about kings and princes, but about real people. It's hard to watch. Shakespeare makes us watch it, though. He puts on a play for us, and it's only after we're fully engaged and fully horrified that we realize that Shakespeare is also holding up a mirror. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. I love this play, Othello. I need to see it more often. Don't we all? Does it make us better citizens? As they thought in ancient Greece? Well, let's put that to the test. You can find more episodes of the History of Literature at historyofliterature.com or jackwilson.com, that's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. Or there's the best way to get them, just subscribe to the whole thing at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you gather your podcasts. should be able to get this little thing, this little podcast, delivered to you electronically every week for free. Think of me like an old-fashioned newspaper boy, in the digital age, throwing a packet of information up against your door before hopping on my bicycle and heading off to the next house, which is probably in Hong Kong. The joys of the digital age. It's keeping me in shape, although the tips are nowhere near as good. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>